Uh, good morning, everyone. And thank you, Steve. Uh, please turn with me to Judges chapter 16. This is, uh, as Stephen has said, this is our last, our fourth and last installment of Samson's story. Uh, and I'm afraid to say, and I realize lots of you know this, but I'm afraid to say it does not end well. It does not end well. In this closing chapter, there is prostitution, and there's vandalism, and there's relational tension, and there's betrayal, there's torture, there's ridicule, there's death, and there's destruction. So aren't you really glad you came to church today? But even in the midst of kind of all the madness and the mayhem, there are valuable lessons. I do believe there are valuable lessons for us to learn and, and issues for us to consider because we believe that all scripture is useful. It's useful for teaching, it's useful for training, it's useful for sorting us out. And so as we read our way through these bleak verses, and they are bleak and I'm sorry about that, but let us be open to what God might have for us this morning, not just corporately, but individually as well. We're not going to read through the whole chapter as we often do in one go. I'm going to break it down into three sections. So let's begin at verse one. The words are on the screen. Here at Windsor, we often stand for the public reading of God's word. And so we're going to do that three times this morning. So you're going to be up and down and up and down all over the place. Okay. So please stand with me, for the public reading of God's word. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. And he went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and they lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there until the middle of the night and then he got up and he took hold of the do doors of the city gate together with the two posts and he tore them loose, bar and all, and he lifted them to his shoulders and he carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron, grab a seat. Samson goes down to Gaza and he sees a prostitute. For those who have been following this story, that should sound familiar. If you have a Bible open, flick over to chapter 14. Look at verse 1 and here's how it starts. Samson went down to Timnah and he saw there a young Philistine woman. On that occasion, Samson wants her for his wife. This time in chapter 16, 16 he just wants this woman. This was clearly an issue of weakness in Samson's life. He saw, he wanted. He saw, he wanted, his eyes kept getting him into all kinds of trouble. And therefore, one of the ironies of this story in this last chapter is surely the irony that the very first thing that happens to Samson whenever he is captured is that he has his eyes gouged out. You know, Samson wasn't the only hero of the faith. And I say hero, and I've been saying hero, because Samson appears in Hebrews 11 alongside all those other great heroes of the faith in the faith hall of fame. So Samson, but he is not the only hero of the faith who's got a sight problem. In 2 Samuel 11, we read that David, shepherd boy, giant killer, king, he sees a married woman washing, and what does he do? He also, like Samson, wants that woman. Treats her like an object. So he looks, and he lusts, 
And without going into the sort of details, because I don't need to, we all know the consequences. You see, many, many people, Christian or not, face similar temptations. But for those who are Christians, and that's many of us here this morning, for those who are seeking to live for God, for those who are seeking to follow Jesus, we need to be extremely careful that we do not develop an eye problem. What we look at, what we stare at, what we view, what we browse matters, really matters. Our eyes, and the Bible teaches this explicitly, our eyes can cause us, they can lead us into sin. They are, if you like, the portal to sinful choices, sinful acts. And therefore, in a bizarre kind of way, the Philistines may have done Samson a massive favor by gouging his eyes out. Now, that might sound like extreme. What do you mean they've done him a favor? Well, the reason I say they've done him a favor is because of something that Jesus taught in his so-called Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he said. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Strong words. You see, what we look at, what we stare at, what we lust after can lead us badly astray. And so Jesus, using language that is specifically designed to shock hyperbole, kind of exaggeration, he says, do you know something? It's better that you rip your eyes out to avoid, stop looking inappropriately at things and people. Later on in the, in the New Testament, the Apostle John, he lists three types of debilitating sin. He identifies three sins that kind of wreak havoc in lots of people's lives. And central to that list is the lust of the eyes. And so what does he say? He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they come not from the Father, but from the world. You see, Samson has an eye problem. It's a fatal flaw, fatal flaw in his life. And maybe for some of us, we, we may need to take note of that. We may need this morning to do a bit of an eye test. We may need to ask ourselves, what are we, what are we looking at? Let's be honest. What are we looking at? What are we staring at? What are we viewing? What are we browsing? What are we lusting after? And whenever you live in an age of constant connectivity, the temptation to indulge the lust of the eyes is an ever-present, it's an ever-increasing threat. To quote Russell Brand, not someone you might expect me to quote, but Brand has recently written how inconceivable it is today that we have icebergs of filth floating through every house on Wi-Fi. It's inconceivable what it must be like to be an adolescent boy now with this kind of access to porn. It must be dizzying and exciting, yet he recognizes corrupting in a way that we can't even imagine. Do you know the lust of the eyes is a deadly sin? 
It's a deadly sin. We've got to take it seriously. And it's not just restricted to men. And it's not just about sexual temptation. But what any of us look at, and what do we linger over? What we get distracted by can have a catastrophic effect on our hearts. What fills the eye fills the heart. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Gordon mentioned the fact that according to Covenant Eyes, which is an internet accountability filtering company who, who work to protect families and individuals in the fight against internet temptation, the statistic that Gordon shared with us, and it, it, it's shocking, 64% of Christian men, 64% of Christian men say they view pornography at least once a month. The lust of the eyes is a deadly sin. It's catastrophic. Thankfully for Samson, he had his literally gouged out. And Jesus says, do you know, if you need to do that figuratively, if you need to gouge your eyes out, figuratively speaking, not literally, of course, then Jesus says, don't hesitate. Do you know why? Because if you don't, there's hell to pay. In Hebrews 12, after Hebrews 11, that we've been quoting quite a lot during this, he, the writer to Hebrews invites us to, to, to look in a particular direction. Here's an alternative place to fix your eyes. He says, listen, fix your eyes in Jesus. Fix your eyes in Jesus. And if we do that, we'll have, we won't have Samson's eye problem. And we will be, again, a phrase that Gordon used a couple of weeks ago, we will be captured by a different vision. If you need to be captured by a different vision this morning, Fix your eyes in Jesus, whatever that actually means. But back to the text. Let's, uh, let's read from verse 4. We'll stand again. Is that okay? This is from verse 4. Sometime later, the, the words are not on the screen, sorry. This time. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek. And her name was, here we go, Delilah. Tom Jones is running through our heads, isn't it? The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and we may subdue him. And each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me, Samson, what's the secret of your great strength? How can I tie you up and subdue you? And Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines bought Delilah seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried. She tied him with them, with men hidden in the room. She called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the strength of Samson was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me, how can you be tied? He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and you've been lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on a loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with a pin. 
Again, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep, pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, listen, how can you say I love you when you don't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and you haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated from, since my mother, from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back at once, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands and after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and... His strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding corn in prison. Grab a seat. So, Samson falls in love. Samson falls in love with the only significant other named person in the whole story, a girl called Delilah. But her feelings for Samson are questionable, to say the very least, because almost immediately, at least as far as the story we have in front of us goes, Delilah's in league with the Philistines and has decided to portray her newfound boyfriend, wife for a whacking great sum of money if she can find out the secret of his great strength. And then what you've got, and it is this rather strange game. Now, Samson, it seems, had a thing for games and riddles. But here is this game where Delilah asks a question. Samson gives an answer. Samson gets tied up. Samson breaks free. Delilah loses. And she is left looking and feeling like a complete fool. And it happens three times. It's really weird. But Delilah doesn't give up. And why does she not give up? Because Delilah is driven by another one of the deadly sins. She's driven by greed. This, this is a huge prize at stake. There's a huge sum of money involved here. And so she doesn't give up. And so she keeps at her newfound lover 24-7, day in and day out, it says, until, to quote the text, verse 16, Samson is sick to death of it. And by implication, sick to death of her. And so Samson tells Delilah, everything. And look at verse 17, because this is the critical bit. Samson tells Delilah how he has been a Nazarite dedicated to God from his mother's womb. And being a Nazarite meant that he had never been to hairdressers, no razor had ever been near his head, and he did not have a haircut because if he did, his strength would lead him. So here's the question I have for you, based on what Samson said. Here's my question for this morning. What was the source of Samson's strength? What was the source of Samson's strength? Turn to the person beside you and tell them the answer. Okay? Here's a clue, by the way, it's not his hair. Turn to the person beside you and give the answer. What was the source of Samson's strength? Right, back again. Samson was not strong because he had never had a haircut. Samson was strong because his life had been dedicated to God. 
so important that we get that. Samson was strong because his life had been dedicated to God. His long flowing locks may have been a sign of his strength, a sign of his devotion, but they weren't the origin of either. Samson, you see, clearly knew his true ID. Samson knew his true identity. I have been, I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. But you see, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of stupidity, in a crisis of identity, I don't know what it was, but Samson decided to compromise who he was. And so he lets the guard drop. And he allows his enemies to take him captive. But surely, surely, and I know so many of you noted this, I could hear it. Surely the most and the far, far more distressing thing and aspect of this whole episode, the most chilling sentence in this entire chapter is this one. And it comes immediately, immediately after Samson wakes up bald. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson is now horribly alone. He's not just horribly weak, he's horribly alone. And in each of the previous three chapters, Judges 13, Judges 14, Judges 15, we read how the Spirit of God was stirring in this man. We read how the Spirit of God came powerfully upon this man. But here in this final chapter, there's not a single mention of the Spirit of God in Samson's life. Not a single mention. You see, without his hair, Samson's vulnerable, but without his God, Samson's powerless. Time and time again, Samson had decided to do his own thing, followed his own desires, looked in all kinds of wrong directions. And as a result, what does it all result in? He's deserted. He's abandoned. He's unable to do anything except now what his enemies dictate that he will do. And at one level, there's a really solemn warning here for Christians. It's a really solemn warning for the people of God because although we may have dedicated our lives to God at some point, although we may have been dedicated to God, devoted to God, surrendered to God at some point, we have got to be very careful to stay committed and connected to the source of our true life and energy. And Jesus graphically explained this when he said this, I'm the vine, you're the branches, those who abide abide in me and I in them. They're the ones that are going to bear much fruit. For without me, without me, you can do nothing. You see, without Jesus, without fixing our eyes on Jesus, without the spirit of Jesus alive and active in our lives, we risk feeling horribly alone and unable to do very much. See if you forget who you are, see if you ever compromise your true idea, Samson did, you may find yourself isolated and vulnerable. Samson let the guard drop. Samson went too far in doing his own thing. The most incredible and chilling thing about this whole story is at one point Samson did not realize God had left him. So where does the story go from here? Well, let's pick it up again, verse 22. Want to stand again for me? This is the last time you'll be on your feet. But the hair on Samson's head began to grow again after he had it shaved. Now, the rulers of the Philistines assembled 
to offer great sacrifices to God, Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison and he performed for them. And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, please put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who were watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed. Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached towards the central pillars in which the temple stood, embracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. And they brought him back and buried him. And he led Israel for 20 years. Grab a seat. Do you know in this, as this last section starts, you, you, you could kind of argue that the Philistines weren't exactly the sharpest tools in the box. They let Samson's hair grow back. Yes, they had, they had like made sure he'll never see again, but for some crazy reason, they let his hair grow back. The very thing that as far as they were concerned was the source of his strength. But that wasn't their biggest mistake. It was a mistake, but it wasn't their biggest mistake. Their, their gravest error came in what they did afterwards. You see, the Philistines decided to attribute their success to an idol. The Philistines decided to attribute their success to an idol, and so they got everybody together, and they offered a sacrifice to Dagon. And they sang at the top of their voices, Our God, our God has delivered our enemy into our hands. And the problem is, the moment you give credit and glory to a false god, the minute you give credit and glory to a man-made god, you know it's never going to end well. It can't. Why? Because scripture reminds us God's jealous. I'm going to think about this tonight. Our God is a jealous God. And as Paul writes in Galatians, our God will not be mocked. And here, the Philistines start mocking God. And then they make another grave mistake. They bring Samson out. They bring him out to entertain everybody, to humiliate him in, literally front, in front of literally thousands of people. And there's another problem because Samson, yes, has messed up. Samson has compromised. Samson is now feeling horribly alone. But here's the thing. God has not totally left him. God has not totally abandoned his servant. Because you see, with God, failure's not final. God is still in control of Samson's life. God is still working out his purposes in and through his appointed judge and savior. Samson may be another chief of sinners as Paul described himself, but you know something, sometimes where sin abounds, grace abounds. There's no limit in God's grace. 
And that becomes evident in what happens next. Because what happens next? Samson prays. And Samson doesn't just pray, but what we read is that God hears his servant's prayer. And not only does God hear his servant's prayer, but he answers his servant's prayer. And so Samson turns to, it's the second time we read of Samson praying, but he turns to God this time, and the first words that are out of his lips are, Sovereign God. Sovereign Lord, you are in control. I recognize that. I acknowledge that. I accept that. And so he asks for a kind of reboot, another dose of the supernatural strength. And then he also asks a wee bit later on, he says, let me die with the Philistines and do something. God grants him his request. Samson was weak at this point, weaker than he had ever been in his life before. But you know to quote Hebrews 11, his weakness at this very moment is turned to strength. This is why Samson appears in the Hall of Fame. And so what does Samson do? In faith, he pushes. The pillars on either side of him, and he brings the house down. And he kills thousands upon thousands of Philistines, far more than he had killed in his entire and colorful life. You see, Samson had been appointed by God to rescue the people of God from their oppressors. And in a final act of self-sacrifice, Samson gives up his life. Yes, it's a flawed life, but he gives it up. And as a result, God wins a great victory. But remember what Samson prayed in the previous chapter. God, you've brought us a great, you have granted us a great salvation. And now his enemies are defeated. And there's no further mention of the Philistines in the book of Judges. And last week I made the point that Samson is Christ-like. And some of you questioned me on that as you went out last week. I didn't mean Samson is Christ-like in terms of his character. In fact, it's pretty obvious, whatever way you look at it, that Samson's flawed character is so un-Christ-like, it's frightening. Someone has said a study in Samson is a study on how not to live a Christian life. Samson's character is not like Jesus in any shape or form. That's not what I meant. But there are aspects of Samson's calling and purpose and specifically his death that are incredibly Christ-like. So right from the outset of his life, right back in Judges 13, as we read about him being born, we hear that an angel of the Lord tells Samson's would-be mother, do you see your son that you're about to have? Your son is destined. Your son's destined to be a deliverer. He's going to save his people from the enemies, from the Philistines. And throughout his life, and ultimately via his sacrificial death, God fulfilled his promise to do exactly that. And therefore, whatever else we make, and I'm done, whatever else we make of Samson, this flawed yet faithful Old Testament character, the thing we've got to do is at the very least allow his story to redirect our focus and our attention towards Jesus. Our God appointed, our God anointed, our flawless Savior who through his sacrificial death has rescued each and every one of us from the enemies of sin and death. And so may praise arise, not to some false God or gods of our own making, but may praise arise to the one true God to whom be praise and glory forever and ever. Amen.